Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children. Welcome to the Rebel Mothers Podcast. I'm your host, Susie Fishleader, and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rebel Mothers. Today's episode is all about the mother line and reclaiming the stories of women. So the mother line, if you're not familiar with this word, it's simply your matrilineal ancestry. Your mom, your mom's mom, your mom's mom, mom, mom's mom's mom, and so on. So in the United States, we typically live in a patrilineal society where women usually take their husband's last name when they marry and children carry their father's last name. So the stories are often told through men. Today, I want to go into more depth on uncovering our personal and cultural stories from the mother line and why it's important. Because ultimately, reclaiming our mother line means reclaiming the voices and stories of women that have been lost, hidden, stolen, or silenced. So for thousands of years, women have been ignored, punished, gaslit, and sometimes even killed for speaking out and sharing knowledge and stories. Women have been burned at the stake, confined in psychiatric asylums, given drugs or shock treatment. Even today, women and girls who speak out against powerful men are often publicly shamed, disbelieved, and mocked. History is written by the one who holds the pen, and for thousands of years, the authors were only allowed to be men. So the silencing of women perpetuates the cycle of inequality, denying the world the wisdom, perspectives, and innovations that women can offer. So recalling women's stories, both historical and contemporary, is crucial for dismantling these oppressive narratives and fostering a future where every woman's story is heard and valued. It's also crucial for understanding how we know what we know about motherhood. The story of the first mother of Eve is often told as a story of sin and shame. Eve, as the first woman, is blamed for the fall of humankind and it came from being curious and defiant. So the lesson is for women, don't be curious, don't be defiant in any way, or you're responsible for the fall of man, right? The story is written down in the Bible at the hands of men, and it is one of the most enduring myths of humankind. And it sets up the understanding that menstruation marks women as sinful, that childbirth and motherhood are painful burdens to bear. So when we think about reclaiming the stories of women, we think maybe what could we have learned if Eve was able to tell her own story? And I think it's often through the stories of our own mother or grandmother, either told to us or witnessed by us, that we learned how to be a mother. So understanding the stories of your own personal mother line starts, you, it allows you to recognize patterns, you know, traits and identities that you might share with the women who came before you. It also, you know, when we reclaim women's stories, it helps the world to reclaim lost aspects of the feminine self and really connect to images of female wisdom and maturity. 
So there's an excellent book that I'm going to reference a few times in this episode uh, by Elizabeth Lesser. It's called Cassandra Speaks. When women are the storytellers, the human story changes. And this is what today's episode is all about, reclaiming the stories of women so that we can tell a new story about what it means to be a human. We'll look at our origin stories and cultural understandings of motherhood. I'll break out some fun stuff I've learned about societies that worshipped a divine mother goddess so we can think about how our perception of mothering might look different if we lived in a world where God was a woman. And then we'll wrap it all up by talking about specific actions we can take to both reimagine the old stories and also start to tell new ones with our active mothering. So the first module in my Mother Bloom coaching and workshops is called Soil Motherline because the soil, it's, this is it. It's like the starting base for every plant's life, right? The health of the soil in which a plant grows affects the health of the plant itself. So our mother line is the soil. It's where we came from. And if we want to create a motherhood revolution and empower mothers, we have to start first by reclaiming the stories of the mothers and women who came before us. This topic really lights me up. So let's dive in. Let's start with our origin stories and our prehistoric roots. So it's said that history begins with a written word, which means history is only about the last 5,000 years. But modern humans have been around for 200 to 300,000 years. So just imagine how much knowledge and wisdom came before the written word. Imagine how many different ways of living, different value systems, different deities, different family structures have existed over this huge amount of time. And I think a lot of times we get stuck in thinking that the way we live now is how it's always been. But we're learning more and more every day that humans have organized themselves very differently in various places and times throughout our history. One of the things that fascinated me the most when I began studying women's spirituality was that throughout prehistoric times, various cultures around the world engaged in the worship of a mother goddess embodying the divine feminine and symbolizing life, fertility, and creation. These ancient societies, often characterized by a close connection to nature and a reverence for the cycles of life, looked to a mother goddess as the central deity. One of the most famous is a Neolithic culture, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, Katalhoyuk. Uh, this this Society existed from around 7500 BCE to about 6400 BCE, so about a 1100 years, and it was found in what is now modern Turkey. So Katalhoyuk provides, if you know how to pronounce that, please let me know, <laughs> but just roll with it if you don't. Katalhoyuk provides archaeological evidence that suggests a reverence for a mother goddess deity. So the site was first excavated in 1958 by um, a guy named James Millart, and initial and subsequent excavations at the site revealed really intricate wall paintings and figurines that depicted a central female deity adorned with symbols of fertility and abundance. So Mellart proposed that these suggested a society that worshipped a female goddess. Now, later archaeologists have debated this, but it's undeniable that these symbols and images of women existed and they must have meant something important. And then Maria Gambutis, she's a Lithuanian-American archaeologist and scholar, and she's particularly renowned for her groundbreaking work on the importance of goddess worship in prehistoric societies. Uh, she was born in 1921, and Gambutis, she dedicated her career to really reshaping our understanding of ancient cultures and kind of challenging the prevailing paradigms in archaeology that was obviously dominated by men. 
So the, the, the sites that were being excavated and the discoveries that were being made and the assumptions about these societies that existed were being told and, you know, interpreted through the eyes of men. So Maria Gimbutas comes along and she pioneered what's called um, archaeomythology, which is an interdisciplinary field of study that seeks to explore and understand the connections between archaeology and mythology, the stories, right? So this approach involves kind of interpreting archaeological findings through the lens of mythic narratives and symbols. It really aims to uncover deeper cultural and symbolic meanings embedded in ancient artifacts and, and structures. And central to her studies was the identification of symbols, artifacts, and cultural practices indicative of goddess worship in ancient societies. So Gimbutas' research brought attention to a wealth of symbols associated with the divine feminine, including images of the pregnant belly, spirals, and bird motifs. So she argued that these symbols were not mere decorations, but were actually integral expressions of a deep-seated reverence for the goddess in ancient cultures. So her meticulous analysis of these archaeological finds, particularly in Neolithic and Bronze Age contexts, really revealed a consistent pattern of goddess-related symbolism. Now, Gimbutas' theories have, you know, critics have questioned the extent to which she interpreted her archaeological evidence through a feminist lens. They suggest that her emphasis on goddess worship might have been influenced by her commitment to promoting a more egalitarian view of ancient societies. But archaeologists interpret their findings through their own lens and bring personal biases to work all the time, right? When the ancient cave paintings in France were discovered, it was believed that the images of animals and humans were meant to represent men hunting as either a way to, you know, ensure a successful hunt or like a celebration of the strength and virility of man. Hey, can you honestly tell me that you don't think that interpretation is maybe a little biased? In fact, in Cassandra Speaks, the book by Elizabeth Lesser, she writes about Dean Snow, who's an archaeologist based in Penn State, who analyzed some of the cave paintings and believes that three quarters of them were painted by women based on the hand size of the artist, which led Lesser to question a lot of the assumptions and stories we were told about these cave paintings. I'm going to read a quote from the book. Quote, it seems that everything we had learned about cavemen in school or from watching the Flintstones was incomplete and misleading. Who were these people who retreated deep into the womb-like caves to paint stories about their interwoven relationship with nature and animals, birth and death? The image I had formed of crude, hairy men holding clubs and grunting around a fire did not match up with the images on the cave walls. And what about the cave women? No one ever seemed to mention them. Why had we been led to believe that our ancestors were merely violent survivalists bent on protection and conquests? What about the mothers and the caretakers, the artists and the mystics and the healers who hand-painted and molded the cave art? Their handprints were on the walls of the caves, but the Cro-Magnon cavewoman has not yet really made it into our history books." End quote. So we talked a little bit in the Partnership Families episode about reevaluating the stories that we share and the importance of collecting and sharing stories that emphasize partnership values. So much of our history is told through acts of war or violence. I mean, how many wars did you learn about in school, right? You learned the dates and the places. I mean, I bet you could name a fair amount, like wars that happened in the United States and also around the globe. But what about the stories of the human desire to care for one another, 
to live in community and create art and look at the stars in wonder and curiosity? Why aren't these stories given the same amount of importance in the history books? And why have we celebrated the warriors and fighters and not the peacekeepers and caretakers? I don't want to be naive. Obviously, those events were important in shaping history. I don't have the answers to these questions, but I want to continue to ask them so that I can tell the stories of the peacekeepers. I can uncover them and tell these stories of, importantly to me at least, the mothers and the daughters of history that have been forgotten. So let's take a look at how the lack of positive mother-daughter stories in both myth and popular culture leave us with very little guidance for our current role in motherhood. We can examine the images of mother presented in legend and in current pop culture, movies and books, and we'll see how it has shaped the idea of what it means to be a good mother. So mother figures in popular culture seem to be divided into two camps, either totally idealized or completely reviled. The idealized mothers all share similar traits. They are nurturing, selfless, protectors, teachers, and more, right? You get mother figures like the Virgin Mary, Maria von Trapp, Demeter, Mrs. Weasley, right? Whereas the reviled mothers share traits like being neglectful, selfish, cruel, sexual, and ambitious. Mothers like the wicked stepmother figure, uh, Betty Draper, Medea, and Cersei Lannister, Um, A lot of times, mothers in popular culture stories are just missing altogether, like think of Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter, or actually nearly every Disney princess. So these characters are all fairly one-dimensional, and they serve to remind us what it means to be a mother and how to act if we are to be a good mother, right? It's either one or the other. It's very binary. And look, I know I'm pretty patient, I'm nurturing, I'm creative, I'm, the, I'm these traits as a person, and that carries over into my motherhood, you know, my mothering actions. I am also very impulsive, pretty judgmental, and I've been accused of being really bossy. And, you know, sometimes in my attempts at getting to the solution of a problem quickly, I will snap at people. Or I don't allow them time to fully express themselves. I'm sure I do this with my kids. I know that I'm a good mom, but I'm not a one-dimensional person. I'm a human and I've got the same types of flaws and desires and goals as anyone else. And I want more stories of mothers like me out there in the world, flawed humans who are still good mothers. So there's this fantastic passage from the book of woman born by Adrian rich that imagines what it must've been like to live in a culture surrounded by images of a divine mother goddess. She writes quote, Let us try to imagine for a moment what sense of herself it gave a woman to be in the presence of such images. If they did nothing else for her, they must have validated her spiritually, as our contemporary images do not, giving her back aspects of herself neither insipid nor trivial, investing her with a sense of participation in essential mysteries. The images of pre-patriarchal goddess cults did one thing. They told women that power, awesomeness, and centrality was theirs by nature. Not by privilege or miracle, the female was primary. Actually, the male appears in earliest art, if at all, in the aspect of a child, often tiny and helpless, carried horizontally in arms or seated in the lap of the goddess or suckling at her breast. End quote. So besides these images in pop culture and history that shaped our view of motherhood, a lot of times we form our understanding of motherhood based on watching our own mothers. 
Of course, even these stories are sometimes hidden or lost, and it takes some time to remember and reclaim them. So let's talk about how we can look to our own personal mother line for more stories of women. There's a quote that I love from the book, When the Drummers Were Women by Lane Redmond. Quote, we vibrate to the rhythms of our mother's blood before she herself is born. And this pulse is the thread of blood that runs all the way back through the grandmothers to the first mother. End quote. So I'm sure you know that how, you know, a female fetus develops, she carries all the eggs she'll ever have throughout her life before she's even born. So when my mother was pregnant with me, all the eggs I would release over the course of my life were present as I developed in her womb. This means that not only is a woman intimately connected to her mother through the womb, but there's an even more profound connection. My daughter, in a symbolic sense, was already present in the womb of her grandmother. And I think it feels like this interconnectedness of generations is this really beautiful reminder that our existence is part of a larger narrative. We're connected to so much more than just our own little lives, right? And the potential for future life is already present within us from the very beginning. And I think it really, this realization highlights the, the deep ancestral ties that bind mothers, daughters, and grandmothers together. So all life begins in the womb, but it is often only the names of men that are passed down. I was present in my mother's womb, but I carried my father's last name until I married my husband and took his last name, which is the case in nearly 80% of heterosexual marriages. This is something that a lot of us don't question. We just accept it as tradition or the way it's always been. And things, to be honest, are easier when we share the same last name, right? People don't question when I'm checking into a hotel that my husband has booked because I'm his wife. I've got the same last name. Our kids bear the same last name. It's just, we live in a patrilineal society. So again, patrilineal societies trace descent and sometimes inheritance through the father's line. So in these societies, family names, social status, sometimes property are typically passed from father to son. Obviously, that's changed a lot lately, but you know, many cultures historically have been patrilineal, reflecting really this focus on the male line of ancestry, whereas the mother line reflects a matrilineal descent. Matrilineal means that the family ties, property, and names are often passed down from the mother's side. But how do we get here? Has it always been this way? Nope. <laughs> matrilineal societies have existed and continue to exist. So. Let's do a quick history lesson on why we today are a patrilineal society, shall we? Okay, so the transition to patrilineal systems started in Europe, and it's obviously a complex historical process that evolved over centuries. There wasn't like a time when it started, but um, you can go back to many ancient and mediev medieval European societies, kinship and inheritance were often traced through both maternal and the paternal lines. However, as medieval Europe progressed, and particularly with the emergence of feudalism, there was a gradual shift toward emphasizing paternal lineage and inheritance. Now, this shift became more pronounced with the development of primogeniture. This is a system where the eldest son inherits the bulk of the family's wealth and titles. Primogeniture reinforced the importance of the male line in passing down property and maintaining social status. Then the, it, the enclosure of the commons in Europe during the transition from feudalism to capitalism also played a significant role in reinforcing these patrilineal structures. So as communal lands were enclosed and transformed into private property, the control and inheritance of these assets became closely tied to individual family units. 
The privatization of land and resources shifted economic power and social status toward those who could accumulate and pass down property, often along patrilineal lines. So, of course, this process disproportionately benefited men as the prevailing norms of time favored male inheritance. The ability to pass on land and wealth to male heirs became crucial for maintaining family prosperity and social standing. Incidentally, this also reinforced the nuclear family as the ideal unit for managing and inheriting these assets, which means that now virginity before marriage and monogamy, at least for the wife, became a crucial institution because it ensured a clear line of inheritance and legitimate heirs within the confines of a single family unit. This shift toward monogamy and the nuclear family model served to consolidate familial and economic control within a patrilineal framework. And it you know, reinforced gender roles and it really shaped the trajectory of European societies moving forward into this. So if you're interested in learning more about this, topic, um, I highly recommend reading Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici. I'll link it in the show notes. So patrilineality is not the natural order of things. It is a system that was influenced by social, economic, legal, and religious factors over many centuries. So here we are today where property and history and stories have typically been passed down through the father line. So part of reclaiming the stories of women means we need to look at our own mother line. So let's talk about how we can do that. Exploring our motherline allows us to connect with our personal history and roots, our cultural heritage and traditions. And recognizing the patterns within the motherline can be a path to healing and personal growth. It can offer a guide for mothering our own children. Ultimately, it allows us to know who we are through the stories of women who came before us. Now, my mom and I have a great relationship. And while she has made plenty of mistakes during my childhood, she's owned up to all of them. And she's one of the strongest women I know, although I know she would never describe herself like that. A few years ago, when I was diving into my own ancestral history, she graciously shared stories from her childhood about her own mother, my grandmother. And my mom tried to give me as many details as she could about her maternal grandmother, who died when my grandmother was only a young girl. So this brings me to my first step in reclaiming the stories of the mother line. And don't worry about writing these down. I'll list them out in the show notes and probably post about them on social media so you can work, you can do this work on your own time. But step one in reclaiming the mother line, reflecting on your own narrative. What do you remember about your mother, grandmother, maybe even great-grandmother? What stories have already been told? Can you ask people in your life to tell you some of these stories? These can be big stories like when they got married or how they immigrated Or they can be little stories like how your mother always, you know, I don't know, hiccups when she's nervous or your grandmother's legendary chocolate cake. And before we get too deep into it, there is something I want to talk about here. Sometimes the stories of our mother line are painful or traumatic or missing entirely. So what do you do if you had a terrible mother? What do you do if you were raised by two fathers? What do you do if you're adopted and you don't know your biological mother? How do you reclaim your mother line if you had a bad or absent mother? So whether you had a great mother, an okay one, a terrible one, or an absent one, you can perhaps look instead to maternal figures. Maybe if you had an aunt or a family friend who supported and nurtured you, someone you were particularly close to you, who feel you, you feel mothered you in some way. 
You can also include the women on your father's side as well. My paternal grandmother was one of the kindest women I've ever met, and she absolutely mothered me during periods of my life. So it may also take a certain amount of creativity and imagination to connect to our ancestral matrilineal roots and our feminine heritage. And I want you to think of this. There are two different ways of knowing your mother line. There's the thinking way and there's the feeling way. Thinking is more rational and linear. Like this is when you go to the facts. You go to Ancestry.com and you learn the basic historical facts and data about your mother line ancestry. Feeling is more intuitive. It's more cyclical. And this kind of gets into like what counts as knowledge? Is it only knowledge and wisdom if it's passed down by like a dead white guy who wrote it down? Are there other ways of knowing? When we feel something in our gut, does that count as knowledge? What about dreams or intuition? Obviously, you can't write a research paper and cite a dream, but when we're exploring the stories of our motherline, sometimes the historical data just isn't there because these stories have been lost or stolen. So it may require a fair amount of creativity, imagination, and trusting intuition. This is a skill that is developed, right? So this brings me to step two in reclaiming the mother line, the mother line meditation. So this is a meditation practice you can do to help you connect on a more intuitive level to your mother line. So during your next meditation practice or anytime you can sit quietly and reflect, just imagine yourself in conversation with any matrilineal ancestor. Ask her what she does during the day. Ask her how she mothers her children, what she eats for lunch, what her dreams and frustrations are. Ask her what she would tell you if she could give you any advice. Then, either during the same meditation or on a different time, think about yourself as a mother and see if there are any patterns that you recognize. So through talking to my mom and learning my own personal history, I really kind of started to recognize that my mother, that me, my mother, and my maternal grandmother, we all had difficult birth, birth experiences with our children. All three of us have gone through or went through our own versions of sort of spiritual awakenings, and we all have a tendency toward depression. My grandmother committed suicide when I was 12 years old, and my own mother was hospitalized for suicidal ideation when I was a little girl, and I have been on and off medication for depression for over a decade. So recognizing this pattern allows me to feel less isolated and ashamed and instead more connected to the women who came before me. It helps me see that this isn't a personal failing. This is something that the women of my mother line have gone through and it took my grandmother and it always almost took my mother and I'm fighting it. I'm like breaking that generational pattern so that hopefully my daughter doesn't inherit it, or at least if she does inherit it, she has the tools and the resources to address it. And so finally, we come to step three of reclaiming your mother line. And I want to think about this idea of the motherhood revolution. This is one of my favorite terms to use. It's how I often refer to my work as being part of a larger revolution. So I love this quote coming up again from Lesser's book, Cassandra Speaks. Quote, The word revolution has come to mean a sudden and often violent overthrowing of those in political power. But not all revolutions are violent. In fact, the word revolution stems from the Latin revolve, which refers to the heavenly bodies making their slow and steady progress through the sky. 
Women are at the forefront of that kind of revolution now. A paradigm shift away from a gendered value system where the male experience is at the center of reality and all other ways of being, thinking, feeling, and doing are at the periphery. Like in Copernicus and Galileo's times, and like in any time where cherished and long-held beliefs and ideas are being challenged, this revolution of values requires a blend of audacity and patience, courage and endurance. End quote. So if we are rebel mothers committed to birthing a new world that is more compassionate and caring and inclusive for ourselves and our children, we must commit to telling new stories that promote these values. And this brings me to step three, the final step, tell your own story. So when I work with women one-on-one in the Mother Bloom coaching program, by the end of our time together, they've written what we call a revolutionary mothering manifesto. It's just a declaration of personal values and actions that mothers can take to create this new world. But even the simple exercise of telling your own story can be revolutionary. You know, think about what are the books that changed your life? What are the things that made you laugh or cry? What are the dreams you have for yourself and your children? What do you want your legacy to be? Often these details about women's lives have not been told, so tell them. In the heart of the motherhood revolution, the act of mothers telling their own stories is a really potent force of transformation. You can think about like each narrative, each person, each individual mother is a thread woven into this rich tapestry of the mother line of this, of generations of women going all the way back, you know, hearing the voices of the women in history that has often been relegated to the side. And furthermore, the practice of being a good ancestor is an integral part of this act, of this revolution, right? You might be familiar with Layla F. Said's work, uh, talking about being a good ancestor on her website and her podcast. And here's a quote, becoming a good ancestor is something that we actually have to practice in our everyday lives through the day-to-day choices we make, the things we choose to focus on or not focus on the way we allow ourselves to deplete our life force, energy, and precious time or focus on what is most essential. Being a good ancestor is something that we keep front of mind. It is something that we use as a North Star to guide us on whether or not we want to spend time on a certain activity, opportunity, or creation. So when you are acting from a place of how am I being a good ancestor, this is the rebel mother. This is the revolutionary act. And by doing this work by recognizing patterns in the mother line, acknowledging the struggles and kind of celebrating the resilience of past generations, mothers lay a foundation for future generations to really thrive. So let's go ahead, wrap up today's episode. Let me recap real quick what we've talked about. Today, we dived into the significance of the mother line to reclaim the stories of women that have been lost, hidden, stolen, or silenced. We recognize how women's voices have been systematically suppressed and had the impact of narratives like the story of Eve, often framed in terms of sin and shame, have shaped perceptions of femininity and motherhood for thousands of years. We discussed ancient goddess cultures and traced the evolution from matrilineal to patrilineal societies and how that shaped family structures and norms. So to reclaim our mother line, we must first reflect on our own narratives, acknowledging both the joys and the challenges within our own personal histories. Embracing a dual approach of thinking and feeling, you can think about the mother line meditation as a tool for a more intuitive connection with matrilineal ancestors. 
And finally, understanding the importance of telling our own stories as a revolutionary act and understanding how that challenges entrenched beliefs and contributes to a paradigm shift. By exploring our mother line, we connect with our roots, recognize patterns, and gain insight into our own mothering. This process is not just a personal journey. It's a vital step in the broader motherhood revolution, advocating for a compassionate, caring, and inclusive world for ourselves and future generations. Stay tuned for more empowering stories and insightful discussions in future episodes of Rebel Mothers. Remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to spread the message far and wide. Learn more at suzyfishleader.com. And thank you for being part of the motherhood revolution.